Okay, let's stand up and begin with a prayer together. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee, without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all-holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is Thank you. Thank God. Thank you for uploading Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I ha- I'm still recording the sessions for people who can't make it. And then strangely enough, the, even though the podcast recordings for the catechism are not professional at all, I mean, they're, they pick up people chatting in the background, the questions, and, um, you know, it's not, it's not edited or anything. They, they continue to get actually quite a few listens every week. So there are people who are exploring orthodoxy who are finding our little, our sessions. So I get a kick out of that. So I'm kind of saying that for you and also for if anyone listens online. Yeah. Well, good. Thank God. Yeah. They have a toddler and um, a baby on the way, so it, and they live on Whidbey Island, so it's hard for them to stay. They tried to do a, a couple sessions here, but uh, Erica was a little bored, I'll say. It was cute. Their daughter, their toddler. So... We talked about icons a little bit last week. And now we're going to transition to talking about the place of the Virgin Mary in the church. So would you guys like to pass around some copies of the book? I should probably just order 15 copies of the new version of the book. And then if someone could tell us what page it's on. It's called Chapter 7. Mankind's yes to God. Page 115. Today is also the feast of Holy Transfiguration. So I'll get right into it because despite my intention to get through certain chapters and special studies. I've been taking probably two to three weeks to do what I was hoping to do in one one week. And I want to stay on track. So let's dive in to talking about mankind's yes to God. And you'll, as we go into the session, you'll understand where we're coming from. The Virgin Mary in her purity of heart and perfect receptivity to the will of God is the historical foundation of our salvation and the fulfillment of our purpose of humanity. Father George Florovsky wrote, to ignore the mother of God means 
to misinterpret the Son. To ignore the Mother of God means to misinterpret the Son. Mariology, you could say, and I'm not a big fan of that term, but the study of who Mary is, what the church believes about the most blessed Virgin Mary, and Christology, what she believes, what the church believes about Christ, are inseparable. That's why we call her Theotokos, God's birth giver. And we'll get into the, the details, but... Uh, I'm just going to write Theotokos on the board. Theotokos comes from, it's a compound word. It comes from the word Theos. Does anyone know what Theos means? God. God. So, anyone have a guess what Tokos means? Good, good guess. So, there's no great English translation. This is one of the problems with ancient language to English, is that we don't always have equivalent terms. So you'll see it translated in different ways, like mother of God or bearer of God. Some people say God bearer, but it literally means birth giver. So, God's birth giver. Now, we'll talk about how significant that is over the course of our session. This, this, of course, does not mean that God originated when, you know, she's the originator of God. Otherwise, she would be God. But this is why our view of who she is is directly so importantly intertwined with our understanding of who Christ is, vice versa. If Christ is God, then she's not just the birth giver to Christ, but to the one who is God. So as a theological and kind of devotional, you could say, um, emphasis from the time of the Third Ecumenical Council, the early, very early in the church, she's been called God's birth giver. So we'll get into it. One without the other, Mary and Christ, will inevitably lead to a distortion of the Christian faith. It's kind of like this, I like to say, like, would you be here if your mother had not given birth to you? No. It's that simple in a way. And then on a, in a theological way, we'll say, would God have been able to manifest to love, to love mankind if mankind had not chosen to receive his love willfully? Because as you know, God doesn't impose himself on humanity. And a lot of people like to think of God as some kind of like righteous warmonger. And that's a nice image to use when you're on his side. You know what I mean? When you're on the winning side of the battle and all, all triumphant. But this is very contrary to the gospel unless you understand that the war that God is fighting is against sin and hypocrisy and selfishness then that's the triumph that you want to be a part of. But not the triumph of man against man, you know, brother destroying brother, and so on. So, unfortunately, the separation of Mary from Christ, 
humanly speaking, historically speaking, is what has happened in Western Christianity as a result of the Protestant Reformation. But at the Third Ecumenical Council, which met in 431, you can look it up online. The text is all available online. It's the Council of Ephesus. Third. Ecumenical Council. Ephesus 431. Yeah, you'll be teaching catechism eventually. (laughs) Ephesus 431. The Holy Fathers sanctioned the widespread practice of hymning the Blessed Virgin as Theotokos. In the 400s, okay, just so you know, this is before the great schism that took place between the Eastern and the Western Church. This is when Christianity was universally one. It was still spreading. But in the inhabited world, so to speak, Christianity was unified and made the unified decision at that time to refer to Mary as God's birth giver. That's really significant. So, 431, they sanctioned the widespread practice of hymning the Blessed Virgin. Hymning just means like honoring, you know, recognizing the Blessed Virgin as Theotokos, which means God-bearer or mother of God. But actually, literally, it doesn't mean either of those. Because in, in the icons, you'll see, and I've mentioned this to you guys before, but on the icon of the Theotokos on the left, you have this, it looks like M, M, R, and then a funny, a funny like thing like this. It actually means um, Matir Theu, which means um, Mother of God, different than Theotokos. One of my favorite stories about Theotokos is on uh, the Sunday of Orthodoxy during Great Lent. So, oh, by the way, Matir, a common name of abbreviating names in the ancient world would be to use the first and last letter of a name. Like we see Christ abbreviated. You see what people refer, they they often say I-C-X-C. It's not actually I-C-X-C. It's actually Yoda Sigma Isus but it looks like a C when it's, when it's written out sometimes. Jesus, those are the first and last letters of the name Jesus. And then X is not actually an X, it's a he or a chi, people say, in the fraternities and sororities. But in Greek, it's a he. So, and then uh, X, C, he, sigma. So, Jesus Christos. It's just a way of abbreviating names that's traditionally used and oftentimes used in iconography, especially for Christ and the Theotokos. And you see what looks like MR and then this is a a theta and an OU, an OU, U, Matir Theu, Mother of God. But this isn't the same as God's birth giver. Uh, Theotokos is a unique term used for the mother of God. Mary, the mother of Christ, who gave birth to him. One of my friends was uh, talking with his priest during the Sunday of Great Lent, where we, we 
process with icons that called the Sunday of Orthodoxy. And he said, so if my daughter is carrying an icon, bearing an icon, is she called an iconotokos? <laughs> and his priest was like, no, not unless she's giving birth to the icon, which is not the case. So but if you're holding an icon or if you're bearing something, then it's Theophoros. So St. Ignatius is popularly referred to as St. Ignatius the God-bearer. That's a different word. Not Theotokos, but Theophoros. And uh, so just a kind of fun with words so that you guys know. Like words have meanings. This is someone who carries or bears God, but not the same as someone who gives birth to God. So she's unique in that she is the only one who has phys physically given birth to God in the flesh. So... Did you have a thought or a question? I was going to also say that that's also where have the origin of the name uh, Christopher from. Christ I love that name. Christophoros literally means Christ bearer. Why don't more people name their children that? Christophoros. Christopher. It's a really good name. There are a lot of good names out there, though. Lots of good names. But uh, so, anyway. She was referred to as the Theotokos to, excuse me, to preserve the correct understanding of Christ as the God-man, as God made man. And they realized that what was at stake was not some optional aspect of personal piety, like whether or not you like her or think that she's neat and revere her as a special person on maybe some pious or emotional level. But what was at stake was the very substance of the Christian faith. And what we believe about the Virgin Mary invariably affects what we believe about Christ. Thus, a proper understanding of Mary is essential for mankind's salvation. First of all, a correct Mariology underscores the fact that Christ is one of the Holy Trinity and not merely a man somehow joined to God. Although Christ was both fully God and fully man, he is one and only one person. What did we say in our last, was it last session or the one before? One person and two natures. Two natures. Okay. One person and two natures. What are those two natures? Fully God, fully God and fully man, divine and human. So, one person, the eternal Son and Word of God. And a man, even one intimately united with God, could not save humanity and raise us up to the perfect participation in the life of God. Only God could renew His image in man and impart unto Him the fullness of His divine life. If Christ is not God, then our salvation is an illusion. Remember that famous patristic quote, that which, was, that which is unassumed is not healed. Meaning, if there was any aspect of our human nature that God did not take upon himself, then that could not or would not have been healed by him or restored. Therefore, to confess that the Blessed Virgin is the mother of God is to confess that the Son born of her is God himself, one of the Holy Trinity. So it's, it's essentially Trinitarian to refer to her as the Theotokos. Let me just finish this last line and then I'll get you. 
Um, on the other hand, to deny that Mary is the Theotokos is to deny that Christ is truly God. And therefore, to deny the possibility of our salvation. And that's a pretty radical claim, it, seemingly, but that's actually the original Christian claim. Yeah, what's the question? Um, just quickly, um, so if Jesus is considered God, would the Holy Spirit be considered God? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three persons, one God. They're so all... Let's talk about like fully God, fully man. Mm-hmm. But what are, like the Holy Spirit's never really talked about in that way, like when you're talking about Jesus. That's just what I was Yeah, about. and the Holy Spirit is... It's kind of mysterious in a way. Because you don't say fully God, fully Holy Spirit, fully man. No, no, no. Because when we talk about God, we're not talking about um, we're not talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're talking about how three persons are God. So when we say that Christ is God, we're not saying that He's one, He's just one with the Father. We're saying that He is completely God. Just like the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Yeah. Does that make sense a little yeah, bit, no, what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I know that. I'm just curious yeah. as to why you would say fully God, fully man. Because he, became, because he became man. Yeah, okay. Because he was the one person of the Trinity who became yeah. incarnate. Yeah, okay. And then what we would say of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is like the indwelling presence of God. So... After, when, when Christ, before Christ died and resurrected, he said that he would send another, another comforter. The word comforter is a, is a word that's also used for the Holy Spirit. It's also what we say, oh, heavenly king comforter, the spirit. Yeah, so, so that other comforter would be, so when, when God was, when Christ was present on earth, he was like you and I. You and I, as close as we can be to one another, as, like as intimate as any two human persons could be, we're still not perfectly, perfectly one. We're separate from one another. The only thing that's kind of maybe closer to me than, than like my wife and I, in a way, is the breath that I breathe that enters into my being and flows through the oxygen that throws, flows through my veins. And the Holy Spirit is likened to the breath of God. That word spirit in Greek is another one, pneuma, which can also mean like wind or breath or spirit. And uh, it's, it's, very, it's the closest sense of intimacy that one could experience. Not only would you be close to God, like when, when Christ was on earth, they could reach out, they could touch him, they could speak to him. There's an even greater intimacy that you be, that God takes up his dwelling in a way in you. That the very breath you breathe is the life that God is giving you. There's a greater intimacy than just a close relationship, but the relationship of communion. So, and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit more too. Um, so, and then next, the proper understanding of the person and work of the Virgin Mary is necessary to safeguard the reality of Christ's human nature. Some suppose that the Blessed Virgin Mary was merely a passive channel or a passageway through which God entered the world. Such a notion, however, makes the humanity of Christ an illusion. 
the church confesses that Mary was the mother of the incarnate God in every sense of the term. Christ took the substance of his humanity from her, becoming in her womb what he was not so that mankind might become what he is. And we hear in one of the hymns of the church, in him and through him are we saved. And together with Gabriel, let us cry aloud unto the virgin, rejoice thou who art full of grace, the Lord is with thee. From thee has Christ our God and salvation taken human nature, raising it up unto himself. So in addition to the confession of Mary as the Theotokos, uh, excuse me, in addition, the confession of Mary as Theotokos affirms the human dimension of our salvation. Man was created in the image of God. This means that he was given the freedom either to realize his life as love and communion with God or to deny his divine vocation, his divine calling, and to condemn himself to an egoistic hell of his own making. Even though the image of God and man has been severely marred by the fall, it has not been totally obliterated. This is a point that we've been making over and over again. Although man finds himself enslaved to sin and death, he nonetheless retains the capacity, however limited, to respond to God. It's like this. I think, I think about this all the time. And this is not directly related to the conversation about the Theotokos, but to our own self-awareness. Um, and I, I use this with youth a lot when I'm talking with them and in confession. But it's just a good point to make in general that uh, most people know that there's something wrong in the world, in their life, in their family, in their relationships, and in the world. Virtually everyone, it's hard to cross paths with someone who doesn't complain about what's wrong. Now, it's harder to find someone who has a conviction about what's right. Or if they're talking about what's right, it's always in contradistinction to what's wrong. And their conviction about what's wrong serves as the motive for expressing their opinion about how things should be. Why should they be a certain way? Because they're so screwed up. And it's very interesting to think about that mentality. But the reason that we know that there is something wrong, the reason that there is a, a dissonance within us is because within us we know that there is something that's right. So one of our big questions, probably the most important question, not saying discard the thought that there are things that are wrong in the world and screwed up and confusing, but if I know something's wrong, then deep within me, there is an understanding or desire, an inclination toward what is right. Maybe I should try to align myself with what's right, rather than orienting myself constantly with what's wrong. That's just another form of corruption. To say, to constantly complain about what's wrong and not do anything about it, but to spend my whole life complaining about it. Actually, it's extremely hypocritical for us to do that. 
It's not loving and it's not caring unless you're willing to put your life on the line to correct what you're constantly complaining about. And the interesting thing is, when you start loving the world for what it is meant to be rather than hating it for what it has come to be, then you won't want to complain about it anymore. You won't want to tear people down and you'll have to get over yourself too and your own discomfort because you'll know that I was meant for something more than this too. I was meant for more than just being some, someone who is a dour complainer. But we have a hard time coming to terms with that. That's hard for us. You know, that's a deep uh, issue. And that's what I spend hours and hours on end meeting with people one-on-one talking about. All the things in their lives that they, that they know are wrong, but they're having a hard time dealing with. They want to change, but they, they can't. Or they think that they can, but it's not happening right away. You know what I mean? And that's because healing takes, it does take time. It is a process. But what are you thinking? What's, what's on your mind? I'm just reading this exact thing in the book, the blue book. The woman's, my memory's not good. The woman writes all the books about orthodoxy. What is orthodoxy? Frederica Matthews Green. Yes. Yeah. She wrote this exact paragraph. I just read it this morning. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it in Welcome to the Orthodox Church? Yes. That book? analogizes it with the bumper sticker mentality, like, you know, they tell you to do something that sounds like good, you know, love it, well, but it's always in contradiction to yeah. the rest of the world. Yeah. It's always an argument, it's yeah. always in yeah. contradiction to what you see, but the minute you just give into love, God's love, it's enough to it's it's enough to preoccupy yourself with what's really important and not with what you can't really change anyway, you know. And so, yeah, that's right. Well, good. Well, thank God. You know, there's some consistency there in our teachings. So, um, okay. So I went on a little tangent. So I need to see where I'm at. So although although man finds himself enslaved to sin and death, he nonetheless retains the capacity, however limited, to respond to God. And that is really important. There is no one who is too far gone. No one. Read the lives of the saints. I mean, two of of the saints that we really love deeply in this parish. St. Moses, who was a murderer and a rapist. And St. Mary of Egypt, who was a, a heathen and a, a pleasure seeker and a manipulator of other people. I mean, two people that you thought, okay, if anyone should be condemned, it would be them. But you know what? These are also people I, I always find deep within everyone's struggle to find meaning even when it's at the expense of other people, which is an incredible tragedy, but is an expression always, St. Maximus teaches this, it's an expression of someone's ultimate longing for God. And the world never provides enough for us. It's never satisfying enough for us. We're ultimately longing for God. And due to our disordered relationship with creation, we fail to find God even in his creation. And to, 
to have a healthy relationship with the world in which we live, which was created as a, a place where we could experience communion with God. That's what the church on earth is trying to provide a corrective to, our weird and disordered relationship with the, the, the earth and our misuse of the creation that could be used as a means of communion with God. Uh, Father Alexander Schmemann writes about this in his book, For the Life of the World, which is a very, very helpful book. It's a little challenging, a little more academic, but it's a very good paradigm-shifting book. And I highly recommend it. Even if you're not a, a great reader or anything, well, that doesn't mean you, you have to be able to internalize everything immediately. Take your time. Slow down and if someone you trust, hopefully if, if my opinion matters in a way, and I tell you, take time to read this one, you'd say, okay, I think there's something important for me. So that book would be really helpful for you, um, for all of us. I sh and I keep recommending these books and I think, Father, when was the last time you read it? I don't know, 10 years ago or something? I should probably go back and read these books again too. So the last word is world? For the life of the world, yeah. Yeah. I'll write it up here on the board. Yeah, we keep it in the bookstore. The world. And he's Russian, so he's got a funny name, you know. Shmemen. Shmemen. Father Alexander. He taught, he taught uh, at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Seminary in New York. Okay, so we have, regardless of how far it seems that we've gone, we have the capacity, however limited, to respond to God. And without this capacity, it would be impossible for man to be saved. For salvation is a free personal participation in the life of God. God will not, and indeed cannot, save man against his will. We do not, in the Orthodox tradition, I'm not going to go on a big comparative, compare and contrast tangent here, but there are some people who, who are Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, who believe in things like irresistible grace, like the irresistible grace of God, that there are some people who are preordained to be saved, and there are others who are preordained even before they were conceived, you know, for, for hell, Calvinism. And that is something that's contrary to the Orthodox view. And a lot of people reject Christianity on the base of, basis of what version of Christianity they've been exposed to. And I've, rem I've told you some of you this story, but one of my friends is a monk. You know Father Trifon, many of you know who Father Trifon is. He was, he was at the grocery store on Vashon Island one day, and he saw a woman with a tie-dyed shirt, long flowing hair. And you know, us, we're kind of... Some of us Orthodox clergy are kind of salt to the earth, too. I mean, look at us, long flowing robes, crazy hair, and we're kind of, you know, earthy. And so he goes, nice threads to this lady with her tie-dye shirt and long hair. And, uh, you know, he could kind of relate to that, too, because he grew up during the, you know, hippie movement. And Anyway, she, she opens up to him and says, I don't believe in God. And he, he gave her a really cool thoughtful response well what god don't you believe in and she went in to talk about a god who is vindictive and delights in sending people to hell and so on 
And he said, I don't believe in that God either. So that was, that's an interesting thing that's very confusing even about Christianity. You know, we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. It's like you keep using the same word, but I don't think it means the same thing. Do they think that God picks people to go to hell or heaven, or does that mean like he already knows who's going to choose him or not? Yeah. He predestines, because it's double predestination where God predestines you to go to heaven. God has chosen. He He has. Now that would—that's what the second one. What you're saying is actually more consistent with what what we understand, because God is outside of space and time, so He would know. He would have knowledge, but we don't believe in predestination, which is what Carl is talking about—that He has pre-chosen that some would go to heaven and some would go to hell. So, yeah, and there is a very like a very strong logical defense that they have for that. You know, I mean, hyper rational and actually it's so it's very it's it's very logical in a way. And in that way, it's very human. And a lot of humans who are intellectual and rational cling to that theology because it 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 seals a hermetically sealed, you know, doctrine of God. It feels so clean and sensible and it gives God the sovereignty and the authority that he needs. Because he's all powerful. Because he's all powerful. And it's, but it's really, tra- it's really tragic. And a lot of people, then, if they if they believe they're on the right side again, kind of like when you're on the right side of the battle, they believe they're on the right side. They feel really good about their theology. But people within that tradition who are questioning themselves, then they think. Then there are people actually. It, it's I've I've seen a lot of even psychological damage in people's lives yeah. as a result of this. That why would a God create me so that He could just send me into some eternal oblivion? Annihilation would be better. Why can't He just annihilate me? You know what I mean? Why Why was I born simply to suffer for all of eternity? Or how could I live with the guilt of knowing that there are... What, do I get to delight in God while other... So it's, it's a very deep issue. It's more than just a theological you know, system. But it is one that a lot of people find solace in because, I mean, I remember finding uh, in many friends in college discovered Calvinism. And I grew up in a kind of a more emotion-driven, feel-good pop culture type of Christianity, kind of not very doctrinal, just... Lots of rock and roll. Well, that came later. Actually, the church split when the music changed. Yes. Which church? Oh, well, it was called... I grew up in a big church in a small town in Northern California, but it was a non-denominational. We called ourselves non-denominational. Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is actually a denomination, but they don't CMA. But... uh, it was it was a very like kind of moralistic therapeutic kind of approach like you know do the right things god loves you and if you've decided to follow him you're 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 saved and then you just kind of navigate your way through life and see where it, and and then you get to go to heaven and it left a lot of people really dissatisfied because they thought well i'm saved but my life seems kind of meaningless i'm just biding my time until i get to go to heaven 
And it felt started feeling shallow. Wait, so I'm saved and I'm supposed to live a good life, but it actually doesn't really matter whether or not I live a good life now because I've already been saved. You know, it's very interesting. It's artificial and it's man-made. It's a man-made theology, you know, that a lot of people are really, but again, people are really, they're trying to find God. They want an authentic experience. So even when we observe these things, we have to try to see what is what it is that they're trying to get at. You know what I mean? Rather than just condemning, oh, Calvinism is terrible and abusive and, you know, evangelicalism is shallow or something like that. Like, there are certain things, aspects that are meaningful there. I have to be careful. I don't want to say, you know, right or something like that. But there are, I mean, because the people there, the reason people do certain things, most people do what they do because they think it's the right thing to do. Most of the time. They think at least there's some benefit, some good that comes from it. And uh, so, anyway, it's an interesting tangent. Yes? So, this phrase, you called it irresistible grace. Grace, yeah. Is that different than like, the unconditional love of God? No. I mean, yes, yes. It is very different. Very, very different. No, the unconditional love of God is, I mean, is who God is. Now, irresistible grace is like, they, they have the view that it's the saving grace of God, but... For the elect, they cannot resist the salvation of God. That's also universalism too, right? That all people but that all, but, but there's no condemnation in universalism. Whereas there is condemnation, but in the end, in the very in the end, end instance, that's right. Even after the very hell, you can still yeah, yeah. Well, that is the the universalist view is that everyone will be saved. Everyone yes. will Did in the end. Part of their belief, but dropped it in like 400s or something. Not that I'm aware That's of. That's what drew me to orthodoxy. Yeah. So, well, so we can talk more about it. Um, but we do believe that anyone who has a free will can willfully resist the grace of God eternally. They can. How is that possible? Could you turn away from? You can, because you have the freedom to do it. You have the right and the freedom. We can stand in denial of reality forever if we so choose. We can. And that's ultimately what hell is. It's a resistance of what is a willful, egotistical resistance of, of God's love forever. How would you, how would you turn away from, from God and choose incredible pain? I mean, what person, even in their wrong mind, could do that? Look around at how much self-abuse takes place in this world. I mean, people, how many yeah, harmful behaviors. Ways to go. Yeah, I but go. I'm just saying that what, what we experience now, it is, it's not like when you die, all of a sudden, it, oh, now I get it. Your, your mindset isn't cor- corrected and all of it comes into perspective. You're the, still the same person that you were. Not like you magically now have the proper understanding. You still have the same will and the same desires. And I mean, we would even say, look, we, we have the ability to encounter God 
now, just like we can in the age to come. And in fact, the distinction between heaven, between heaven and hell as eternal dispositions or situations in man are fairly artificial because we can become members of the kingdom of God now so that if when we when we die, it will be quite familiar to us. I mean, hopefully people who are in the Orthodox Church will be gaining some familiarity with the kingdom of God and won't be surprised. I know a gal who I went to uh, lots of Bible studies. I mean, she was like massively into the church. Mm-hmm. And the kids are named like Talitha, Gideon, Boaz. All of her yeah. kids are named biblical. She's completely against God now. She fell from God from being this mm-hmm. super into church and now she's completely the opposite. Completely. Yeah. She's just totally mixed up She completely fell off. Of yeah, her. that happens. Yeah. Yeah, and depending on, you know, what tradition she was a part of. Just Protestant. Yeah. Know, part of it is when when you put such a a high emphasis on personal or individual salvation and merely m- mere moralistic purity, then it becomes all about me. Like it's just so me focused. It's so individualistic. And you have to, no matter how much you claim that it's all God, it's so individualistic that really it is so much hinges on your behavior, your ability, your commitment. You know what I mean? And it's a standard that people can't live up to. And and then they impose that on one another too. You know what I mean? Um, but it is really hard. And her kids are named all these names. Oh, it's like I know. She's got to live with that. Maybe yeah. hopefully that'll, I don't know. I just, well, maybe, yeah. I mean, keep praying for her. Yeah, it's very sad to see. And I still go back to what James said, you know, that Orthodoxy was healing his understanding of who God is. And so yeah. through what God is, you know, surprisingly doing and you're unexpectedly reaching you. And who knows? I mean, I'm not saying like you're going to be the next um, Saint Nina or Saint Catherine or something, but that's you're going to be the next you, not the next you, the only you, to share what God is doing in your life with people, and who knows what kind of healing can take place. Our first priority is to seek the healing that we claim is real, and then you know Christ said, "Heal or heal thyself," you know. The one who would claim to be able to heal others better be taking the medicine that he or she is saying is so important. So personal integrity is the starting point, but you know, not perfection, definitely. You know, humility, bear, hum, excuse me, humbly bearing witness to Christ and realizing it's not all on me. I mean, that's why we need the church. That's why we need one another. We're members of one another because we're saved together. And so that's one of the challenges in the Protestant view is that there's so much pressure put on the person for moral purity and personal experience of God. And you have to have something to say and you have to be insightful. No matter how hard you try, it's never enough. You know what I mean? And being in the church heals and helps and corrects that. But... Then you also have to sort through. The, that idea of being in the church and being saved together is really nice for a lot of people. Oh, we need community. and then, But then you have to deal with uh, 
the theology of the church too, iconography and our view of Mary and the rituals and traditions of the church, which are an organic, like a natural part of the, the family that is the body of Christ too. But uh, you, it's amazing what God does in people's lives. How much he, he loves people way more than we could ever love them. You know what I mean? God is way more sensitive and compassionate and caring than you and I or ever could be. And so we have to understand, we really have to deeply believe that, you know, God really does ultimately have the best interest of any person. But then we, we have the privilege somehow of being a part of what God is doing in other people's lives, you know. So, but thank you for sharing that. It is really hard. So, again, so we put a heavy emphasis on, this is where we went on, on a little uh, sidetrack here. God will not and cannot save man against his will. Only God can save man, but man must want to be saved. He must respond to God and enter into the life which God offers him. When the church confesses the most holy virgin to be the mother of God, she's affirming the freedom which mankind possesses to respond to God and to accept the life that he offers. This, to hear some, some Protestant commentators talk about the incarnation, one would get the idea that Mary had absolutely nothing to do with it. The logical implication of such an approach is that God simply used the maiden as an inanimate tool. Like Father James used to say like that somehow she was just like a tube through which God entered the world. Try calling your mom a tube. You know what I mean? No. It's, it, it's just so, it's so sterile and impersonal. It's a real human being that brings someone into the world. And so to disconnect her from that is artificial. And it's very insensitive in a way. I mean, just to, and on a very personal level, it's just, it's... It kind of doesn't click for me, like why the theological implications of that. Yeah. Like that God does things. Uh, All right. Share. Sorry, Please like, share. No, that's okay. That, like Mary is not a vessel, you know. She was not, it was not this, that she had to say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that she kind of co-participated. Yeah. In, and I've heard, now I'm thinking about it like, oh yeah, this is what people write about. That like, you know. God enters us the same way, you know, like we become bearers of Christ in the same way Mary does, but it's like there's a, uh, like a, yeah, like a yielding or like a participatory or a, mm-hmm. we, you know, through that, through the exercising of the free will, which is, yeah. you know, God not violating his nature. Total trust, too. Freedom, you know, yeah, it is. So, yeah, it's like, it's why we're not, you know, like, it's all, it all just clicked into place right then. Yeah. Do you know the there's there's a a technical term that we use for that cooperation between God and man. What um, synergy? Well, it just occurred to me that Jesus has the genetic synergy or co genetics of Mary, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's a I've never even thought about. No, I mean, I, there was a guy I was talking to a while back who I baptized, brought him to the church, and. Um, comes from a, like a very, very strong like Protestant background. Loves God like so much, but was looking for the fullness of the faith and found orthodoxy. 
Um, it was like it was like he his life was like a plant that needed to be potted somewhere. You know what I mean? And he didn't know where that was, or you know, that needed to be put in a garden to grow. And he found the church, but he was really struggling with this issue because it was so foreign to him. And like you just said, he was looking at an icon. He was trying so hard. He was looking at an icon of the Theotokos. He had gotten one because I recommend that people get an icon of Christ and of Theotokos holding Christ. And he looked at her and he went, Christ has her DNA. It was her blood and his blood that were, you know, were shared. I mean, it was that close that natural of a relationship. And so he came to that realization too. How could I ever have thought that I could separate him and her from one another? Now that's not to conflate her with God and to somehow say that she is God. But you're, like you're saying, her, her yes allowed her to be united with God. So, you didn't just pick her randomly. I mean, she was... <laughs> yeah. 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 And we pick this one over here, you know. Exactly. Super special person, yeah. The one and only. That's right. So, um, okay, I don't even know where I went, where I left off. Yeah, I don't have page numbers here. (laughs) The fact of the matter is. The fact of the matter. Um. Oh my goodness. Oh, there. Okay. Yeah. Inanimate tool. Yeah. Okay. The fact of the matter is that the Virgin had the freedom. In modern parlance, she had the freedom to, to just say no. She could have refused the joyous tidings of the archangel. She could have rejected God's plan for the salvation of mankind. Yet she, like you were saying, Amy, she alone among the sons and daughters of Eve said yes to God with such purity of heart that she became a vessel fit to hold the uncontainable God. But more, I would say more than just a vessel, but a conduit. And that was actually what one of my Protestant professors in college, in Bible and theology college, got right. And it was really eye-opening to me. He said, we weren't just meant to be receptacles of God, but conduits of Him. Well, that is really good. You know, that's, that's important. Because it makes me the end if I'm just the container. Then, you know, like, who cares what happens to anyone else? So... She alone among the sons and daughters of Eve said yes to God with such pure... Okay, I already read that, sorry. Um, And she said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Luke 1, 38. Mary's yes, and he uses the word, the word uh, fiat, which is like a formal authorization or a proposition or a decree. Um, Her total agreement is the foundation of our salvation. Better understand this, let's consider the historic and cosmic and ethical dimensions of the Virgin's yes. We've seen that the coming of Christ was the fruit of a long historical process. God prepared the world for the coming of his only son by electing the children of Abraham as his own people. To Israel, God gave the law, the priesthood, and the prophets. Therefore, Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the priesthood, and the prophets, cannot be separated from this historical process. The most blessed Virgin Mary is the culmination of all that God has done through Israel to prepare the world for the coming of His Son. She is the perfect flower of God's plan of salvation. 
For from her immaculate womb flowered forth the fruit of life, Christ our true God. So we have some hymns from the church that are quoted next. He who promised to thy forefather David that the fruit of his body he would set upon the throne of his kingdom, he it is who has chosen thee, the only excellency of Jacob to be his spiritual dwelling place. God promised to our forefather Abraham that in his seed the Gentiles would be blessed, O pure lady, and through thee today the promise receives its fulfillment. And lastly, the Holy Scriptures speak of thee mystically, O mother of the Most High, for Jacob saw in the days of old the ladder that prefigured thee and said, This is the stair on which God shall tread. She's likened to Jacob's ladder. In Genesis 28, therefore, as is right, dost thou hear the salutation, rejoice, thou who art full of grace, the Lord is with thee. I shared with our study group the other night, I, I don't know if we have any copies of this book downstairs anymore, but while we're speaking of Mary, there is a book called The Life of the Theotokos. No, The Life, what is it called? Of the Virgin? The life of the Virgin? Uh, Maximus the Confessor? St. Maximus. The Life of the Virgin of St. Maximus. I shared it with you all on um, Thursday night over there. Uh, the Life of the Virgin, yes. Um, by St. Maximus. And it's, it's a little bit of a pricey book. It's a hardback. Um, but... Uh, it is, it's a compilation of, from within the tradition of the church of the authentic aspects of the life of the Virgin Mary. And it's written in a very beautiful way. So that's something that we were carrying downstairs, but a lot of people have been reading a lot lately, so I never know what we're going to have, you know, which is inspiring. But uh, that's one, if you're interested in going deeper, you could read the life of the Virgin by St. Maximus. There's also a good book by St. John Maximovich that's a thinner volume. And it's, what is it called? The Place of Mary in the Church? Let's see. Mary. I'm going to look it up really quick. Uh, Orthodox Veneration of the Mother of God. So, um, let me give you some resources you can look up. Veneration. And remember, you guys know what that word veneration means, huh? Uh, and the Mother of God by St. John Maximovich. Where does... Uh, St. John Maximovich Lion and Pose, do you know? In San Francisco. In San Francisco, yeah. Where did he die, though? Yeah. Here in Seattle. There's a special chapel there at the St. Nicholas Cathedral. So the Virgin Mary, however, not only stands at the end of a long historical process, she's also the culmination of the entire human race and of all creation. All creation rejoices in thee, O full of grace, one hymn states. 
because she is the fulfillment of what, like, what creation was meant to do, was meant to say yes to God. And the redemption of Eve, which we'll, we'll talk about. Yeah, no, you're right. So, one hymn states that he, Christ, was born of the Father before eternity. So we say begotten before all ages, without a mother. But now for our sake, he came from thee, the virgin, without a father. Commenting on this hymn, Paul Evdekomov has written, the analogy is clearly described. The maternity of the Virgin presents itself as the human figure of the paternity of God. It's fatherhood. If fatherhood is the category of divine life, motherhood is the religious category of human life. He writes this in the book Sacrament of Love. The Virgin Mary, therefore, is the perfect icon of how humanity, if it is to be truly human, ought to respond to God. To quote Evdokimov again, the Bible exalts woman as the instrument of spiritual receptivity in human nature and its capacity to receive the divine. Now this next paragraph I think is a little um, a little distracting. So I'm going to skip it and we're going to go to in the services. That's my little editorial. Um, you can read it sometime if you want. But now it is interesting though that we refer to the church as the bride of Christ and also the soul, the human soul who is longing for union with God also as a bride. Oftentimes in the poetical writings of the church, in the hymns and in the writings of the saints. So there is like this kind of, you could say feminine character in a way to each and every one of us as those who are longing to, for union with God. I mean, it's very interesting that we refer to the church as the bride of God. Mm -hmm. It's like how, again, we refer to like the mother of God as the unwedded bride. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So in the services for Annunciation, what happened at Annunciation? Does anyone know? She was told to announce the marriage. Was it Gabriel? Gabriel. Gabriel. Gabriel announced what? Wasn't there a dark side to Gabriel? Like the fallen angels? Not Gabriel, no. She just, he announced... announced yeah, announced right. This is where this, this whole yes took place. And do you guys happen to know the date off the top of your head that we celebrate that? The date is significant. It's March 25th. Why March 25th? Nine, nine, nine months before nativity. So it's always easy to remember that we celebrate the Annunciation, which is the conception of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary, on March 25th, exactly nine months before the nativity or the birth of Christ. Now someone asked, I believe, I've heard, I heard this story from a, um, Father Maximus Constus, who's a great teacher of the Orthodox faith, and he lived as a monk on Mount Athos for quite some time. And, um, he, he was talking about uh, how, a story when someone asked St. Maximus the Confessor, actually, when, when life begins. When does life begin? 
And he pointed to March 25th in the Feast of the Annunciation. And he said that this, he didn't say it was, it's beyond my pay grade or anything like that. Um, he, he pointed to this feast and he said, this is when life begins. This, again, this is when a unique and unrepeatable person is brought into being um, at the point of conception. So that's another just thing to, to add into the conversation as we're talking about mankind's yes to God. But So in the service of Annunciation, many hymns are in the form of a dialogue between Mary and Gabriel. And unfortunately, it's, it's hard for people in our day and age to make it to all of the services. It's hard for people to be here for all of the feast days. It's even hard for the churches, I mean, all parishes to, to do fully, you know, all of the services just to make all of these incredible teachings and hymns available. But that's a little bit of a sales pitch just to say that one, if and when you can, come to the services of the church, especially for the feast days, and pay attention to what's happening there. Pay attention. And you're not going to internalize it all in you know, one 45-minute or hour-long or <laughs> three-hour-long service. It takes years. That's why we go through this liturgical cycle. Because God has sanctified time and also... Um, through repetition, it gets more deeply uh, ingrained into us. You hear the same thing, you know, over the years, and you start to understand. I mean, how many times have we read uh, read a passage from the Scripture and not been, you know, touched by it, or it's not speaking to me, and all of a sudden, it makes sense now. I never knew what that meant. And so the same thing happens through exposure to the hymns of the church. Now. If you don't have the ability to make it to the services, some of them are, are, are posted, the texts are posted online on our church's website. So, so if you can't make it to a church service, especially for the major feast days of the church, then without sound, sounding dramatic, like we should always kind of feel a bit sad if we can't make it. Oh man, it's, you know... Holy Transfiguration, and I'm too busy. Now, this Transfiguration happened to land on a Sunday this year, so most of us were without excuse. But a lot of the feasts, lie, you know, they're on fixed days of the year. March 25th isn't always on a convenient day. And so um, we should order our lives to try to prioritize those things in as much as we're able. But also then, if you can't make it in person, then you can still read the hymns you can still celebrate the feast in a way. You know, not everyone can take 12 unique days off of work to do all of the 12 feasts for some reason. But if you but you can take a little time instead of I don't know, um, like surfing the internet for other things, like you could take 20 minutes to read some of the hymns for a particular feast day. So if you go to the our website, I'm filling up our board today. You go to our church's um, website, antiochian.org. There's a, uh, a little section. I'll tell you specifically what it says. Again, I'm always encouraging people uh, to just come as much as you can, you know, of course. But 
It's hard, especially for those of you I know who are commuting across the sound. But if you go to Antiochian.org, and then there's a little link for liturgics. Liturgics is another word for uh, church services. Liturgics, then you can go through the different days of the church year and you can pull a PDF of a lot of church services. Now they're producing Wednesday night Vespers for every week, Saturday night Great Vespers, Sunday morning Orthros and Liturgy throughout the year, and then other special feast days, including the 12 great feasts of the church and also well-known saints too. So they've been kind of building up the, the library on there. So that's a good, that's a good use of the internet because most people can't, uh, can't go buy, you know, a 12 volume set of big hardback books that costs, you know, a thousand bucks or something like that. And no one was, has ever been expected to in the past the time, the only place that you really needed to have those was at church because you would hear those words being sung in the church. But we live in different times. So we, I'm encouraging you to use the resources that are available to get to know the, um, the teaching of the church in this way. And it'll help you feel more connected you know, throughout the year if you can't make it. So for Annunciation... Some of the hymns are in the form of a dialogue between Mary and Gabriel. It's very beautiful. The church teaches us through poetry a lot of times. Mary is hesitant at first, fearful of being led astray. I'm fearful, I fear lest thou deceive me as Eve was deceived and lead me far from God. And in the end, however, she's convinced... by the truth of the archangel's words and commits herself to God and says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. So Mary's yes is the answer to Eve's no, which is what you were saying. So her yes heals the wound that started with the first Eve. Through her receptivity to God, Christ, our true high priest, came into the world to offer all creation back to God in one all-encompassing sacrifice of love. And in this way, Mary's yes is the yes of all humanity to God. One of the hymns for the Nativity expresses it in this way. What shall we offer thee, O Christ, who for our sakes has appeared on earth as man? Every creature made by thee offers thee things. The angels, the angels offer thee a hymn, the heavens a star, the magi gifts. The shepherds, their wonder, the earth, its cave, the wilderness, the manger, and we offer thee a virgin mother. If therefore the virgin is the historical foundation of our salvation and indeed fulfills the most basic purpose of humanity as a whole, then she rightly serves as a model for our own lives. Our task as Orthodox Christians is to strive to respond to God in every way, as did the Virgin Theotokos. Archimandrite George Kapsanis, who was a monk on Mount Athos, uh, writes in this, there's a, lit, a little, little thin book that's really beautiful called The Eros of Repentance. And he says, contemporary man is deluded by the devil and believes, as did Adam and Eve earlier, that his freedom is to be found in his autonomy and in his revolt against God. 
with this egoistic attitude, man loses the possibility of true communion, not only with his God and Father, but also with his fellow men. And he lives as an orphan in an intolerable loneliness, which he experiences as an existential emptiness. That's the end of quote. If we're to find out, excuse me, if we're to find our true freedom as persons created in the image of God, we must follow the example of our most blessed lady and say yes to God in every facet of our lives. You could say that the whole of the human condition comes in us, in us, uh, in us uh, misappropriating the free will that we have, the freedom that we have. And instead of saying yes to God, we've chosen to say no to God. And we say, or we say yes to God on certain things, but not on other things. And that creates an existential crisis as well. Because you can't, you and I can't have two people living in the same body. We feel at odds with ourselves. We feel inconsistent and hypocritical. And that hypocrisy needs to be healed by overcoming the habitual no to God that we call, that we refer to as the passions. You know? And by learning to say yes to God in all things. One of my favorite definitions of, of a saint, you know, a person who, who has lived a holy life, is someone who's learned to just always say yes to God. That's another Father Maximus uh, saying. Not St. Not Saint Maximus the Confessor, but Father Maximus Constus, when he was giving a clergy seminar. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a book about a monk if it was an Orthodox one. <laughs> I, I read about, I, and it just reminded me right now that you were saying about that us as humans need to um, understand and, and, and recognize our own human flaws and our own human weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, once we gain and reconnect with our own humanity, then we can only then begin to understand the humanity of Christ, the, the human side of Christ. Um, if we reconnect, mm-hmm. if we understand our flaws and reconnect and understand our humanity and learn about our weaknesses and connect with the humanity of Christ as an example of the, the human life that we have to follow, Mm-hmm. connect with the human part of Christ and only then we will be able to understand the um, see that the, not the human but the gap side of Christ mm-hmm. like this like the divine, the divine yeah. side of Christ yeah. that is impossible for us as humans because we do not even know our own human Oh yeah, that's right. Side. That's right. We don't and we don't know ourselves. Our own human understanding and try to jump from me being just me trying to understand the divine part of Christ. Mm-hmm. Then it'll be impossible because I have I cannot even comprehend my own humanity and attack and, and use the humanity of Christ as my example to leave to reconnect to the divine part of Christ. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice. I forget which book it was. Probably one written by a monk somewhere, yes. you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. Probably, well, it sounds like you've been reading books by Metropolitan Rothios of Lakos, haven't you? Yes. And he talks a lot about the, the therapeutic tradition of the Orthodox faith as reuniting, you know, God and man, um, healing the, you know, the, the rift within ourselves. Correct. And then reuniting so, yourself mm-hmm. to attach yourself cling to Christ. Look at yeah. Christ as your human example of, you know, look at his humanity yeah. and take that as an example for all your weaknesses. And then once you do that, then you can, then you begin to understand and leave up to, you know, like how to achieve um, connection, theosis, you mm-hmm. know, like, like say, yeah. I can feel Christ within my life. Now I know what Christ has done for me. Yeah. Well, God could have, God, in a way, God could have revealed himself to us, you know, objectively, somehow separate from us. And in a way, I mean, we know. We, we, humans can stand in denial of, of uh, the reality of the, of the absolute God. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that God isn't there. Uh, that doesn't mean he isn't, but but even if even if we do believe that God is out there somewhere, well, what does that have to do with me? Until the incarnation took place, or until we come to the understanding of who Christ is, and then we understand that God is not that um, that distant deity, you know, who put things into mercilessly put things into motion so that we can figure it out for ourselves and be left to our own devices. Because it's hard to believe in, again, that a God who is a creator could have anything to do with love if, if he was uh, such a trickster as to just put this all in motion but separate himself from it. And the incarnation of God shows how immediate and intimate the love of God is for, for us. That he didn't just reveal himself as divine, but he became what we are. Not just to reveal himself, see? It's not just to reveal himself, but to draw us into, to allow us to say yes to him, to be drawn into his divine life through his becoming man, I think is what, essentially yes. what you're saying. It's amazing, yeah. Okay, we're, we have six minutes and I'm supposed to finish on time, so I'm going to try to do it. If we, if we are to find our true freedom as persons created in the image of God, We must follow the example of our most blessed lady and say yes to God in everything in our lives, calling to mind our most holy, most pure, most blessed and glorious lady, the the Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary with all the saints. Let us commend ourselves, one another, and all our life unto Christ our God. In this way, we will begin to bear witness Excuse me. In this way, we will begin to bear Christ within ourselves. As the Holy Apostle Paul says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. And okay, we still have a little bit of time. So. It means that he, like his ministry, in 
sharing the gospel would not be complete if people just knew about Christ, but he wanted them to have Christ formed within them. He wanted them to be united with Christ, not just to know about him. You know, there's a difference between knowing about and actually knowing. That's an important distinction. Um, so that's, that's the, the point that's being made here. Just in a similar way as to how Christ was formed, took form within the Theotokos. We can, not in a way, not, not exactly as it took place in her, but in a way that's unique to you and I. He can be formed within us so that we can fulfill our identity as those created to be according to his likeness. So we want Christ to be formed within us, not just to, you know, to be near us or for us to know about him. Um, that's the point. There's a, there's a, the language of intimacy is there, of closeness, of communion, you could say. So let's read a couple of quotes from the fathers, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. And then next time we'll talk about the intercessions of the saints, because I just don't think we have enough time to get into it today. So Eve, by her disobedience, this is quoting St. Irenaeus, Eve, by her disobedience, brought death upon herself and on all the human race. Mary, by her obedience, brought salvation. Eve had to be recapitulated in Mary so that a virgin might be the intercessor for a virgin and by the obedience of a virgin undo and overcome the disobedience of a virgin. So like you were saying, she's the, uh, I think, Jamie, you were saying she's the second Eve and that's the consistent teaching of the church or the new Eve. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, In her virginity, Eve put on leaves of shame. That could be unpacked a lot, too. <laughs> Your mother put on, in her virginity, the garment of glory that suffices for all. I gave the small mantle of the body to the one who covers all the small. A mantle is a cloak, or a cape cloak. Blessed are you also, Mary, whose name is great, and exalted because of your child. Indeed, you were able to say how much and how and where the great one who became small dwelt in you. See, he's acknowledging the freedom that Mary had to accept Christ's invitation. And then last, St. Andrew of Crete. Thou was contained in thy womb, O Virgin Mother, one of the Trinity, Christ the King, whose praises all creation sings, and before whom the throne on high the thrones on high tremble. O all venerated lady, entreat him for the salvation of our souls. And so we do, like we ask for her prayers. Um, one of the things I can end, I can try to limit it to a minute and a half. But uh, I think about this all the time, and I've mentioned it in some homilies on feasts of the Theotokos before. Like, who would, who would tell a little child who scrapes their knee or, you know, is scared not to, to, to run to their mother and ask for help? You say, no, don't go to your mother. Go to your father only or something like that. No, a mother has a unique relationship with her child. Mary... In that Christ was literally formed in her from the time of conception through birth. And she then 
even after giving birth, then she witnessed his ministry and his death on the cross. And I think this is something I have realized as a as a father that I will never that I will never really understand motherhood firsthand. I will not know what it feels like to bring a child into this world, have them within me and feel responsible for that, give birth, and now they're outside of me, but I still feel responsible for them, and I feel like they're a part of me, yet they're separate from me. The weight of the responsibility, but also the incredible love that, and the closeness that only a mother can experience. has uh, It's really woken me up and you know I think as a priest the only the only thing that that I feel like maybe gets close to the experience of motherhood in some way is like rearing people in the faith and then baptizing them you know I feel like I am begetting them but it's still it's different it's it's different so we see in her the unique love that only a mother can have for a child and a unique relationship that only a mother can have for a child that she has with Christ. And as a result, we appreciate her and we honor her. And because of the closeness that she has with him and the understanding that she has as a mother, then we ask for her prayers a lot. We ask for her prayers just like, I mean, I can ask for you to pray for me, of course. I hope pray for me this week. Okay, there. I'm asking you. I'll be praying for you too. But then we also pray for those who we know are very close to Christ as well. Just like we ask for each other's prayers, especially her. I mean, it becomes so natural actually for us to to ask for the intercessions of the Theotokos. And we have special services that we do for that. (laughs) I kind of jokingly, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, I asked everyone, have you called your mom lately? You called your biological mom. What about your spiritual mom? You know, Mary, have you asked for her prayers? And, you know, it's kind of like the paraclesis that we do, asking for her intercessions and acknowledging her uniqueness is, uh, I feel like, uh, kind of the religious uh, version of calling your mom, you could say, when we have these beautiful services during the Dormition Fast. So, all right. Well, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers and of His Most Pure Mother, May the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. Thank you so much for being here today.